welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we talk with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk about where we are with COVID, pandemic or endemic. Also, Dr. John Weisler, cardiologist, answers your questions and clarifies whether or not alcohol is good for your heart. Think a sexless marriage is just a sexless marriage? Think again. It's more than just a dead bedroom, plus tips to increase the spice in your sex life. And have you ever heard of a red light therapy bed or, or a photo biomodulation bed? It could help your pain. I'm Maureen McGrath, and the Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Continuing to join me on the program two years later, Dr. Jason Kindrachuk. You've heard his voice before. He is the esteemed scientist whose research focuses on circulation, transmission, and pathogenesis of emerging viruses that pose the greatest threat to global human and animal health. These have included Ebola viruses, coronaviruses, and influenza viruses. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. How are you this evening? Uh, doing okay, and, and to be honest with you, uh, actually doing some Zika virus uh, work right now in the lab. So, oh, it, uh, <laughs> it, it almost feels like I'm a grad student game. It's you know, um, people believe Zika virus, Ebola virus, the flu virus. They don't believe coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, this is you know, I, I I'm always shocked, right? Uh, and maybe I'm getting to a point now that that I shouldn't be, but. Yeah, it's it's just amazing. It's still the same the same tropes and, and the same disagreements that, that we had at the start of 2020 uh, still today. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just unbelievable. And I and if I recall correctly, back in 2020, people were hoping against hope that there would be a vaccine, that a vaccine would be developed. And, and you know, some projections for that were like four to 10 years down the road. Our lives are going to be looking incredibly different. And then because mRNA work had been going on for at least 20 years and there was dedication from people like yourself, um, lo and behold, the vaccine um, for coronavirus uh, came came upon us, fortunately, and, and not only just one, but but several different ones. I was speaking to somebody today, a, a woman who is pregnant, and her mother is a doctor, and she said that she and her husband were not going to get the uh, vaccine for COVID. Uh, she didn't really, she just felt that she would be fine if she got COVID. Um, and I said, well, how does your mother feel about that? <laughs> she said, well, my, my mother would really like me to get the vaccine. You can imagine. <laughs> um, and, you know, you think here's a physician who understands research and, you know, clinical uh, aspects of COVID and I'm certain has seen uh, cases of long haul COVID and yet her own daughter won't get vaccinated and is pregnant. And it is such a danger for pregnant women because there's already a stress on on the body. And and I I saw at one point that there were more pregnant women in intensive care in Toronto than there had ever been in the history of intensive care, or in Canada, not just Toronto, there had ever been in the history of ICUs in Canada. You you just got to shake your head. I, absolutely. And I think what we need to, you know, again, keep reminding ourselves about is, we, you know, we, we hear about this idea of vulnerabilities and, and people that are high risk. And it's, it's been very difficult. I've, I've dealt with this in court a couple of times with you know, this, this kind of moniker that, oh, well, it's only people that are above a certain age that are high risk. 
It's not. When you look at uh-huh. the different underlying uh, medical issues that, and conditions that are associated with high risk, pregnancy falls into that, COPD falls into that, chronic kidney disease, cancer, um, uh, certainly even going into social determinants of health and looking at racialized communities and low socioeconomic status, all these things play a role in, in increasing the, the risk associated with disease. So when we think about those people that are vulnerable around us, um, it does not fit into necessarily uh, a, a crystal ball that we can very easily pinpoint who is high risk. In many cases, it's actually quite complex. And that makes it difficult as we talk about this idea of going back to normal. Trying to pinpoint who is the most vulnerable is not, I think, as easy as maybe we've anticipated it, it would be. Oh, absolutely. You know, I was talking to my sister-in-law today and she had COVID in December early on, you know, right around when Omicron hit and she is still suffering. She's 48 mm-hmm. and she is still and, and healthy, was healthy and she's on inhalants now. She has pain. Her health has changed dramatically and, and they have said she's a long hauler. And, you know, to get that news uh, here in January, February, a long hauler. In other words, you're going to be suffering with, you know, this these long haul COVID symptoms, which can be so debilitating for two years. She runs her own yeah. business. I mean, you know, and and she's out of work. She's not able to work. She she's exhausted. She's got incredible fatigue, and it it just you know for people who say, I I just want to get COVID or I don't care. It's over. Whatever. I don't think they realize the risk, and it's a bit of Russian roulette. It, it is, and and it's certainly you know one of, one of the things we we need to appreciate is this is now a vaccine preventable disease, and that's what makes it I think so frustrating is when we talk about this idea of the risks associated with COVID. And yeah, listen, the, the majority of people that get infected likely are not going to have uh, moderate or, or severe disease. Many people are going to have very very mild symptoms. Um, but how many of us want to take that risk? Because you can't necessarily exactly. pinpoint whether or not you are going to be the one that is that outlier that that gets severe COVID, even though you are healthier, you're younger, you fit into a demographic that you haven't traditionally seen severe disease in. Um, I, I look at that and say, why why gamble if you have a vaccine that works and they're readily available? Uh, what why why take that chance? I, I don't understand it myself. You know, and getting back to the woman that I was speaking to who's pregnant, um, she is a teacher. And she was saying, interestingly enough, she was just saying, I just want COVID to be over. And I'm just so tired of all the masks. And she said, um, you know, and, it's, and I said, oh, uh, you know, she was from an American city, Chicago, actually. And and, and I said, oh, are, this, are the mask mandates still on? And she said, no, no, they're not. But the kids are still wearing them. <laughs> and she said, the kids are, you know, got used to them, they're comfortable in them, and they don't want to take them off. And and she said, I just want to rip them off all of their faces. You know, I'm just like, you know, these kids actually learned, you know, (laughs) better than the teacher, dare I say. She's like, I just want them all to get their masks off and just forget about it. And it's just like, you know, as you say, you just can't take that chance. But but are we shifting from pandemic to (laughs) an endemic phase? Yeah, so the great, great question, right? So where, where are we in this? Um, we've heard a lot about this idea of, you know, learning to live with a virus. And, and look, I, I will push back at all that and say, we need to learn still what living with this virus means. And that's the position right. we're in right now. When we talk about this idea of it being endemic, what we're talking about is that there's a static rate of infections and recoveries that we're seeing. So we're not seeing 
at, you know, these, these kind of you know, very broad peaks and, and troughs. We, we have a, a baseline level of infection. But what that doesn't say is whether or not that baseline is high or low. Because if we think back to smallpox, smallpox was endemic across the entire globe for, for many, many years. Uh, malaria is endemic. Lassa virus is endemic. Influenza is endemic. So endemic, in some cases, can, be mi- can mean mild. In some cases, it can mean very severe disease. Um, so we, we don't know. And certainly the position that we're at right now is as we roll back restrictions um, and as we start to move out back into somewhat normal, what is that rate of infection going to look like? So when, if we think about, yeah, okay, cases are dropping as we still have mandated restrictions and we're moving away from that, now you're starting to guess whether or not you're going to see a, a rapid rise. And we've certainly seen across the globe it still is rising in certain locations. We have to be appreciative that their uh, BA2 is circulating. There may be other variants. So we're at a very early stage to be certainly talking about this as being endemic now. It probably will become that. But let's ensure that we actually have the data to support that before people feel that we have made it to that, to that point. Yeah, I, I did actually hear a broadcast journalist say, um, you know, COVID is over, or so we think, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, we really don't know, you know. No, and, and I would, again, I would, I would argue if you look at, if you look at Hong Kong, the issue that, that they're facing right now of cases, certainly what we've, what we've watched in Denmark, um, you know, we, uh, saying that it's over, um, uh, you know, we, we are playing that game of saying, okay, we understand the virus. But we don't understand it yet. I mean, we, we thought the same thing after Alpha and Delta as well. So let's appreciate we've been in this position before. Let's understand virus is still transmitting. We still probably are going to see other variants. We don't know what that's going to look like uh, in regards to, to the vaccines and certainly in regards to those people that, that can't be vaccinated yet or, or people that are in high-risk categories. Let's, let's be very cautious as we move ahead. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. Thanks so much for staying on the line. Dr. Kinderchuk, um, I did want to speak to you about uh, this deer to human transmission and the importance of that. Yeah. So, listen, I, I right away will say that uh, I've, I'm very fortunate to be connected to a couple of the authors on on the study, uh, Dr. Uh, Samira Mubarek and Dr. Brad Pickering, um, both uh, of which are doing quite a bit of One Health work, which is trying to understand this relationship between humans, animals, and, and the environment in regards to infectious diseases. So one of the things we've been focusing on for, for a long period of time and as part of Covarnet, where, where all three of us are, are joined together, is trying to understand what is going on with this virus beyond humans. Because the unfortunate reality is that this virus is no longer just unique to humans. It's moved out to a number of different animal species. We've certainly heard about many companion animals and, and captive animals have been infected. But it's also moved out uh, certainly to mink populations and also into, into deer. So one of the things we've been interested in is this idea of what happens when the virus gets in these animals. Um, is it simply the virus spills over into an animal and we don't see any ongoing infection or do we see ongoing infection and transmission? Well, in deer, it's complicated. It looks like there is some sort of transmission that's occurring uh, between humans and deer but then it's being sustained in the deer. Um, and, and that means that if it's being sustained and it's transmitting, there may be some uh, possibilities for, for viral evolution and mutation. Well, now we've seen the reverse happening, where now it's moving back from deer, it's moved back from deer into a human. This is really important because when we think about this idea of trying to certainly contain COVID and contain SARS-CoV-2, um, 
one of the things we need to appreciate is that if it is now in wildlife and it's circulating, we have to also appreciate the potential for spillover back into humans and certainly get a better understanding of what's happening in regards to mutations in those animals. So we can start to predict, are we actually needing to consider variants or variants of concern that are moving through animals that may also pose a threat to us? Absolutely. And, you know, I think people don't realize the significance of this um, on humans, but uh, you're doing this amazing work uh, to continue looking into into this and, um, you know, seeing if this might have an impact on uh, the, the pandemic. I do have a text message from somebody. This is, uh, let me just grab it here. <laughs> I'm vaccinated, but how can I further improve my immune system against COVID? Vitamin C, melatonin, Decorsetin, NAC. Do you have any thoughts on that, um, Dr. Kinderchuk? Uh, you know, my, my biggest thoughts are, listen, if we want to try and improve our immunity, um, let's try not to get it. So, you know, and, and I mean, I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that in the sense the all those behaviors and those, those uh, you know, avoidance behaviors that we've been doing for a couple of years, and as you pointed out, have helped us reduce the amount of flu and RSV and other respiratory infections that we've seen. If we can try and continue to, to have some of those avoidance behaviors that reduce those tolls, that's our best bet. So use masks when you're sick. Certainly be, you know, be very conscious and, and conscious of, of where you are in regards to, um, to interactions with the community and what transmission looks like. All those different factors that, that we've been hearing about, uh, but we now have to take on as individuals. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of... Um junk <laughs> that's so yeah. for lack of a better word that's sold you know people are sold a bill of goods about their immune system and there's really no evidence to support that vitamin c is um you're just going to avoid that out quite honestly uh, and it might even irritate your bladder along the way um you know melatonin you know if you can sleep you know have good nutrition sleep yep. excellent hygiene um, you know, try not Rest. to get run down yeah. like me. Don't be like me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, really just take care of yourself. Don't be buying all these minerals and, and these supplements. Would you agree with me, Dr. Kedrachuk? Absolutely. The and, and, I think, <laughs> and, and stress is a big part of this too. Right? Like, listen, the, the, right now, 2022 yeah. is a tough, it's a tough time. So yeah, we just got to yeah. try and keep healthy. Excellent point, the stress. Thank you so much once again, Dr. Kedrachuk. Hopefully you'll join us Thank next you, Marty. week. Always jam-packed with outstanding health information is none other than my next guest, Dr. John Weisler. He is a general cardiologist in private practice and the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for having me, as always. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, So I have my own question for you before I begin. (laughs) Um, Sure. So... You know, sometimes, it, you know, we can be under a little bit of stress and uh, and not even realize it. You know, you think you're going along and everything's just great. And then all of a sudden, you know, your heart might uh, start to beat a little bit faster and you realize, oh, no, maybe I am a little bit more bothered by that situation than I thought. Is, is that something that um, that can happen? We talked a little bit at the end of uh, Dr. Kinderchuk's segment about stress. And, and uh, stress, whether it's recognized or not, because oftentimes people think they're just doing great and they're going along. But what is the impact of stress on the heart? 
So it, it can be significant. And, you know, I, I certainly agree with you. And, and evidence, you know, bears out that there is a, there are a lot of people that have chronic stress and it often sort of builds up on us. So we're not always aware of it. Um, so what this does over time is it, it does, it, it increases our levels of adrenaline and related hormones and neurotransmitters. Uh, so our heart beats faster, it works a little bit harder. Um, and then it also raises the levels of inflammation in our blood, so different inflammatory markers that we can measure. And uh, and then thirdly, um, if you're under stress, often if it's work and something is taking up a lot of your time, um, you may be less active, you may not look after yourself, exercise, make good dietary choices. People's food choices are often you know, less less wise or less good when you're in a rush or under stress. So all of those together increase the risk of heart disease. Stress is a big risk factor for heart disease. It's about, you know, as important as um, high blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes and, and smoking, you know, so, so they all have a, it has a similar impact and controlling stress uh, is very important to avoid heart disease among other yeah, things. And I th- I think we forget about that a little bit. You know, um, I, I just have somebody in my life who I, I'm concerned about. And um, and so, you know, but you get good news and then you get bad news and then you get good news and then bad. And, and you know, and so it does, it it can, you, you're, you know, and even when you're on the, the good news part of it, that little bit of, you know, seesaw activity that goes along with it, you're just, you know, the the heart can actually give you symptoms you know, and I experienced this over the last couple of days, um, you know, that my my heart just unwittingly, you know, even when I was relaxing, I'm like, oh, my gosh, my heart's going a little bit faster <laughs> than normal, which is usually at about 120 beats a minute, by the way. <laughs> no, uh, it isn't. No, <laughs> I know. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but, yeah, we, we kind of underestimate the impact of stress. And, and these days, especially people are living – I mean, under tremendous stress uh, with, with with COVID and and jobs and working from home and you know, there's just so much going on and and, and it's so important. It doesn't matter the age uh, that the stress begins. So you know, I, I imagine that there's a lot of university students and you know, kids in their twenties and people who had to re- reschedule their weddings and you know, people who lost people in COVID in their thirties or forties. You know, does the age matter? in terms of stress management? Uh, I think so, yes. The, um, certainly we have some data to show that, you know, the, the longer you're exposed to stress, so the, the more chronic, so both, both intensity and duration uh, make a difference. So longer is worse. So, you know, stress that starts in the earlier years that persists throughout life is certainly you know, a, a fairly substantial increase in, in heart disease risk. Um, and, and as you point out, you know, there's so many different factors and always stressful things in life. But I don't know if it's, you know, our, our modern media where we can see anything right away or, you know, how interconnected we all are, or at least were before COVID. But those of all, I mean, the, the reports of stress and, and stress related, you know, problems um, certainly are higher than they've ever been. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And you, and you mentioned also the importance of nutrition, uh, you know, a good diet. And, you know, if we're on the run or, you know, we're worried about something and then, you know, typically for me anyway, if, if I'm concerned about anything, my appetite is gone. And, you know, I might have bites for dinner, bites of Swedish fish, to be honest, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. you know, a Frito, a Frito or two. Um, and, you know, but other people might emotionally eat as well. 
And, and so does that compound the problem, compound the stress and the impact of stress on the heart? Definitely it does. So, you know, the whole relationship between stress and our psyche and, 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 and what we eat is fascinating. And I'm, you know, by no means am I a, a dietitian, but I know a little bit. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, your, your appetite is affected by stress. And as you mentioned, some people, they really lose their appetite, eat very sparingly. You know, and we all need, you know, calories and vitamins to live. And then other people do. They they have emotional eating. They overeat or they eat particular food. There's a, a lot of literature, you know, that, that there are some components, some people that eat, you know, eat certain foods and, and have, have habits that maybe aren't ideal for their heart. You know, they're attracted to, you know, the sugar or the fat or the salt in the food. And the attractive properties of those nutrients are actually like stronger, so they're they're more obvious to us or more compelling to us when we're under stress for maybe an evolutionary reason or something. And then when we make you know poor choices recurrently, it's not just bad for our heart, but you know our digestion isn't as good. We may not get the vitamins and other nutrients that we need. So energy levels taper off, and then we we uh, get tired more easily. Um, and then you couple that with not sleeping well under stress, and it sort of sets up a vicious circle. And then how about sleep? Uh, very important for people to sleep, uh, I, I would imagine. And if people who aren't sleeping or people who have, um, uh, you know, breathe, snoring, uh, that might be a concern for them or sleep apnea. What, what is the impact of that on the heart? So um, raises the risk of heart disease. So both heart attack and particularly stroke. There's a, a fairly substantial sleeping uh, association between poor sleep and, and risk of stroke. Um, and it can occur again through probably through several different ways. One of the well, or better studied ones anyways, is um, the association with high blood pressure. So if you have sleep apnea, your blood pressure spikes really high when you, you know, you, you stop, when you have sleep apnea, you, you don't breathe properly at night and your breathing stops. And so when your breathing stops, you get a surge of, you know, adrenaline and other stress related hormones. Uh, so you partially wake up and you know, are able to take a deeper breath and, and breathe again. And so there's a well-studied um, association with high blood pressure uh, in those patients. Um, poor sleep in general um, without sleep apnea is also linked to an increased risk of, you know, heart disease and stroke and other disorders. We're not entirely sure, like, of all the mechanisms. One key mechanism, Marine, seems to be uh, our bodies, like, need to heal and get rid of inflammatory markers and inflammatory particles in our blood. So when we don't do that, those can accelerate the, you know, process of atherosclerosis and getting plaque on our arteries. So there's, there's a few connections. And yet there are, you know, a number of people who struggle with this, uh, struggle with uh, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. And, and oftentimes we, somebody called in about vitamin C or texted in about vitamin C. They think they'll just pop a pill, you know, pop a, um, you know, a supplement or a mineral or some, you know, promise of, a better life. I mean, I see advertisements on television where, you know, the man has a very large gut, but he's, you know, got some, you know, vegetables in a bottle <laughs> that are going to change exactly. his life. And <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the same commercials, but it um, only worked that well. Yep. <laughs> honestly, I would have like, bottles of vegetables every day. Um, but, you know, for people who don't pay attention to their sleep and their nutrition and their exercise and their stress management, I mean, it's, it really can have a significant impact and expose them to an increased risk of a heart attack or other cardiovascular disease. 
Yeah, th- there's unfortunately no no quick quick fix. You know, it, it, poor sleep does and stress do increase our risk of you know heart disease and stroke. Also, you know, our risk of infections, things like common colds and other other infections. Also, certain cancers are a little bit more likely. Um, the everybody or not everybody, but many people love their their vitamins. You know, I have patients that you know don't want to you know, pay for very cheap generic medications that I recommend uh-huh. for their heart disease, but they're happy to spend, you know, 50 or $100 a month on various vitamin supplements. Most vitamins Honestly. and most, and, and it's, it's common, you know, and, and we all want to believe that we're doing ourselves um, a favor. So I, I get it, to, you know, to, to a point anyways, but, you know, most vitamins have very little evidence. The, the evidence for multivitamins in particular, very disappointing, no consistent benefit. A lot of people like to take antioxidant supplements. Um, those in the well-done trials have largely been either no benefit or a slight perhaps risk of harm. So, you know, vi- vitamins are, are nice in theory and kind of the idea, well, we don't eat well, we can replace some of what we're missing with a with a pill. It kind of intuitively, maybe it, it should work, but... The, the evidence that it actually makes a difference, you know, really isn't there. So it's not uh, a good substitute for looking after yourself. No, it certainly isn't. I mean, I have so many friends who have thousands of dollars of these minerals and supplements and patients um, in their drawers. You know, I have one woman who was spending $400 a month on vitamin supplements and, you know, and, and she's just, it's just changing the color of her urine, basically. Um, I have a question for you from a listener, Alice. Uh, can you please ask the doctor at what stage should a person start taking cholesterol medication? My family member is 71 years old and her cholesterol reading is 6.9. She doesn't have hypertension or diabetes. She had hypothyroidism. Thank you so much, Alice from Vancouver. So, um, a great, a great question. And one that I got a lot of course as a cardiologist and there, there is no one right answer. Um, basically, how we do it is that we um, assess your overall risk of developing heart disease. So the basic assessment is, you know, um, something called the Framingham score or something similar. So we look at what your cholesterol is, if you have a family history of heart disease and other risk factors like your blood pressure and whether you smoke. And then we get a, a risk of heart disease in the next 10 years. And based on, you know, if, if you're at a higher risk, lowering cholesterol with the medication gives you more benefit. Um, so that, that's how. So there's there's various cutoffs and you know um, numbers that we use, and maybe it's a little bit artificial when you explain it this way. But it's based on you know if if you give a cholesterol medicine to somebody else who is totally healthy, young and totally healthy, their risk, their chance that they benefit the reduction in risk of heart disease is very small and maybe not worth the medication. If you give it to somebody who's already had a heart attack or if they you know smoke and have diabetes, their risk of heart disease is much higher, and the benefit that you give them by lowering somebody's risk of cholesterol with a medication is much more substantial. So there is no one uh, perfect age. Um, for the uh, listener's question, I think the individual is 71, so that gives you some risk. So your risk of heart disease does increase as you grow older. But And, and then the total cholesterol is 6.9, but I would, I would ask, like, what is the bad cholesterol versus the good cholesterol? Mm-hmm. And we'd need to know a little bit more about the person before I could you know, make a, give some advice. And the advice is always from guidelines, but the, the pills are generally, you know, the, the, there's a lot of fear of them. They're generally extremely safe and they do lower cholesterol often quite a bit more effectively than what we can do with our diet alone. A lot of our cholesterol is genetic, so there's often a role for, for medication. 
Dr. John Weisler is my guest. Thanks so much, Dr. Weisler, for staying on the line. He's a cardiologist at Lionsgate Hospital, head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital. Uh, Dr. Weisler, I saw on Twitter that... um, My other home. No, um, I saw on Twitter a, an addictions person wrote, I'm frequently asked, what's the most deadly, dangerous drug? They expect to hear meth, cocaine, or fentanyl, but I always respond with alcohol. And this is why I'm never invited anywhere. <laughs> However, alcohol is, of course, it's just so socially accepted. And, you know, people do not realize the effects of alcohol and there's a study that has come out recently about the it actually impacts the size of one's brain um but how and then we also have heard in the past that you know red wine is good for your heart have a glass of wine every day um what is the impact of alcohol on one's heart and i guess i don't mean a glass of wine but i might mean daily drinking i actually said to somebody um do you drink uh, every day. What did I say? Are you a nightly drink, daily drinker? And he said, by daily, do you mean at night? Um, you know, so people <laughs> drink a fair bit. <laughs> um, and, and we laugh about it and, and I shouldn't, but you know, some people feel that there is no danger, but what's the danger for the heart? Yeah. So th- there's a few different, um, concerns with the heart and, you know, th- th- first of all, the, the idea that a, a glass of red wine is good for your heart you know, any any benefit is very small. It comes out of sort of, um, you know, uh, lower grade types of evidence where, you know, with, with dietary studies and food studies are hard to do well because there's, you know, so many other things in a person's diet that can change at the same time when you're studying one thing, other things change as well. Um, there is, uh, so any any benefit is, is very small. So it's not like a um, uh, effective pill or something you should start doing if you're not already drinking to try and get the heart benefits. The, the harm for your heart, it can um, irritate uh, heart rhythm. So higher levels of alcohol are linked to skipping of your heartbeat, which is uncomfortable but not dangerous, and then also linked to atrial fibrillation, which can be dangerous. It's a common heart arrhythmia. Your heart goes beats too fast and it's irregular, and it gives you a risk of stroke. So um, it's important to you know, um, watch out for that. Higher levels of alcohol, um, especially beyond a drink a day, also increase the, you know, high blood pressure. So um, that's one of the common causes of high blood pressure that um, usually improves if you drink less. And of course, high blood pressure is bad for our heart, increases the risk of inflammation, which deposits plaque on our arteries. And then it can weaken, if you, if you drink, you know, there's usually more substantial um, people who drink more substantial amounts of alcohol, uh, it can weaken the heart. So I define that as maybe more than two drinks a day for, for most people. Um, it can weaken the heart muscle so the heart muscle doesn't squeeze effectively. And so what we call cardiomyopathy. So the heart can, you know, the heart can be injured by alcohol in a few different ways. And, and do you see this in people who are chronic drinkers, long-term drinkers, 20, 30 years, bottle of wine a night or share a bottle of wine every night? Yeah, the, 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 the greater the exposure, the greater the risk. And so long-term high levels of of alcohol it tends to you know cause a lot of these heart problems um one exception atrial fibrillation is sometimes triggered by you know you maybe don't drink much and then you go to a party and you have a number of drinks so we call that holiday heart so that can come on with you know oh. uh, not drinking chronically <laughs> yeah exactly it's it's not a not a good type of holiday so you can you can feel it no. and you know need to go to the emergency so atrial fib uh, more, it's it's common both with 
you know, a chronic, a, a lot of alcohol that you drink every night, also a sudden change where you drink more. The other changes, um, the longer you drink and the more you drink, the more likely they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think people realize that. I feel like I've been like a de- total Debbie Downer tonight with, you know, eat well. <laughs> so no more Swedish fish, no chocolate. No. Um, well, get your sleep, go to bed, don't drink. <laughs> That's the healthy all, way all to live. Important things. I think it's worth mentioning that we sort of have this definition of low-risk drinking that's, you know, maybe less than seven drinks a week for women, uh, you know, no more than usually one drink most most nights, and um, no more than 10 drinks for most men, so one drink or less most nights. Um, and so at that level, the risk is lower, so that the risk of these things increases significantly if you drink more. But it is worth remembering that there's no, like, this paper that you mentioned, you know, really emphasizes that there's no clearly safe level of alcohol. The risk is there with uh, with lower levels of alcohol too. You know, the, the more you drink, it gets quite a bit higher. Exactly. Dr. Weisler, as usual, thank you so much for a fantastic segment. I really appreciate it. Two segments, in fact. You're it's welcome. Awesome Thanks for having me. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome back to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Uh, I certainly do have answers. (laughs) I'm so glad I have the answer to this question. What was the name of the song and artist for that bumper music? And I'm assuming you're meaning that bumper music because I got it right after that bumper music, that text message um, in the first segment. And the song is called Mad World, and it's by Michael Andrews, and I love that song. It is a fantastic song. So thanks so much for asking about that. We've got lots to cover in this hour. We're going to be talking um, not the sexiest subject first, and then we're going to get to sexier subjects. So how's that? Um, But right now, I want to talk about a very important subject, even though it it is not the sexiest subject, uh, and it's a big challenge for a significant number of Canadians, one in five, in fact. Joining me on the line is the founder of the Irritable Bowel Disease Center of British Columbia and the director of UBC's Advanced Irritable Bowel Disease Training Program. He is Dr. Brian Bressler. Dr. Bressler, good evening. Good evening. Hi, Maureen. Hi, how are you? Excellent. How are you doing? Oh, good. I'm very well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to have you on the program. And it's stunning that one in five Canadians suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. But tonight we're going to talk about irritable bowel syndrome with constipation. But if you wouldn't mind, or IBSC, but for the listeners, would you mind actually defining what IBSC is? Absolutely. Pleasure. Um, I mean, your point at, at how surprising it is as to how frequent it is seen uh, amongst patients um, is an issue that we have. And as to your introduction, people are um, shy and don't feel comfortable talking about their bowels, and perhaps for good reason, but it certainly makes it much more of a challenge uh, for them who are suffering because they don't necessarily feel comfortable. So one of one of certainly my roles in society is to try to make people feel more comfortable and feel that this is an issue that is common, as you've alluded to, and we really should be comfortable talking about it because it could have a tremendous impact on one's health and one's overall uh, overall well-being. So what irritable bowel syndrome is, the way I would explain it, simply it's when the bowels don't function properly. So there are two potential ways that a patient can then perceive that malfunctioning of their bowel. So the first one would be the movement of 
issue of, of, of feces or, or fluid through their bowels. So some patients who have irritable bowel syndrome may go more often than would be normal. And the constipation version, they would be going less often than normal. Um, and then there are some that have an alteration of, of that particular issue. And then secondly, and importantly, that the other way that we know bowels are malfunctioning would be if they're too sensitive. So specifically, they may suffer from significant symptoms like abdominal pain um, or bloating. Um, and so it's that combination of being hypersensitive, so suffering from pain, and also the malfunction of the bowel movements themselves. You put those symptoms together and it comes with a diagnosis that would then be consistent with this irritable bowel syndrome. I, I have so many questions. First of all, I'd like to say that I always thought of irritable bowel sin- syndrome as an associate that well, I've always felt or thought it was associated with frequent bowel movements or diarrhea, um, you know, loose stools, that kind yes. of thing. So I, I was a little bit surprised to learn about IBS C. Um, mm-hmm. So to make a diagnosis, and I do want to get to, you know, the triggers. Um, but to make a diagnosis, how, how is that done? Because a lot of people would suffer from constipation and bloating. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's fairly commonplace, but, and, and, and the, and I can imagine the impact on quality of life would be terrible. And then constipation is brutal in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, um, and so, so the, 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 the diagnosis is actually made from the history. Um, that certainly it would be reasonable in the right context to do investigations like blood work or other investigations like a colonoscopy if one was suspicious or was worried about an alternative diagnosis. But this is one of the challenges of this field is that unfortunately, I think, there isn't a a marker in the blood or a particular test that Mm. would come positive for this condition. So then, we're, so then right. we're left with trying to put the pieces together and seeing what this is, how it differentiates from constipation. And again, it's a little bit, um, it, it's not that, it's not, it's not black and white, but it's this pain component that chronic constipation mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have, that patients with this condition, they really do suffer from pain. And in addition to that, they're constipated. Right. And, and you mentioned that bloating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how... What uh, what are some of the triggers for uh, IBSC? So um, so there are some. So I would start by saying there are there are there are reasons we that we don't we don't know, uh, but some of the more common reasons why someone would acquire irritable bowel syndrome would be post infectious. So meaning a patient suffers mm-hmm. from a viral or a, or a bacterial gastroenteritis, so they have food poisoning or, or some version of that, and that then sets off then their bowels not functioning thereafter for quite a long period of time, potentially. So it started from an infection, and the infection is no longer there, but it's a sequelae as a consequence of that initial insult to the bowel that then has set them up to then suffer from this condition. Other more usual triggers, without a doubt, stress is certainly one that we see regularly, and it Though may not be the cause of it, it certainly can make it harder to treat. And also, based on how one's mental health is, whether it be stress that can lead to anxiety or depression, perhaps, um, potentially it could then exacerbate or lead to it being harder to treat or for it to come back 
in a more common way. And how about uh, lack of exercise? Does exercise play a role here? I, I asked that question. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. There's a method to my madness. Right. Well, I mean, I think that there are certain, certain lifestyle um, um, triggers, so whether that be exercise or keeping hydrated, that can predispose absolutely someone for constipation. Um, and I think it would be very reasonable to assume that that in and of itself then could exacerbate or could lead to this particular problem being more predominant or, or, or causing more problems for a particular patient. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I have a text message from somebody who, who says, MM, <laughs> I've a nurse friend who, like me, has IBS. She's a runner mm-hmm. listening. Thank you. Uh, and yes. thank you to the doctor. Um, for, for talking about this subject. And the reason I asked about exercise is, you know, we, we all are concerned about, um, you know, being regular. And let's, you know, destigmatize this conversation that we all have bowel movements, fortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, I do find, you know, walking is highly beneficial uh, and, and also being hydrated. But, but actually getting out and, and walking, you know, 30 to 60 mm-hmm. minutes a day is extremely beneficial to keep me regular. There, I've said yeah. it. Um, and, and how important is that for people who either don't have it or, or preventing it? Right. Well, I mean, I think or either that, have it, sorry, either have it or, or preventing it. Sorry. Right. I mean, I would think that it is, it's critically important. And one example of that. So where, are, when are most people most constipated when they travel? So you sit in an airplane for five, six hours and that then that's a double-edged sword there. You're not moving as much as perhaps you would have usually done in a day. And you're more dehydrated because of the environment you're in. So that's a very common time. In fact, that would be another predisposing factor is people that travel are much more likely to then suffer from constipation on their trips. And, and it probably just highlights or emphasizes, conversely, the importance of moving and staying active and exercising, as you've alluded to, you know, 30, 60 minutes a day with walking certainly keeps everything moving. That's kind of what we're intended to do and our bowels appreciate it. And it's that movement um, that probably helps. I, I, for many, unfortunately, it's not the end all and be all. That's not the only thing that is mm-hmm. necessary for patients to, to, to overcome their challenges. But, um, but for many, it could be a very valuable um, part of their therapy. Right. And, and I'm amazed at the infection that this can be post-infection. Um, that, because that really, anybody is at risk for that. Anybody who, yes. you know, has some type of GI infection, I, I would imagine. Um, the other thing is people who get constipation are at risk for something like hemorrhoids, which can be horrific as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and potentially, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so do we see this as a complication of IBS-C? Yeah. I mean, I think that that relates to the Absolutely. And that in and of itself, one could argue that that's kind of its own entity and it's a consequence of the bowels not moving efficiently. And I think it's the efficiency. That's probably a good way to describe all of this, that you, you lack the efficiency when you're constipated, that things just aren't moving in a coordinated, complete way. And that's in fact, and, that's, and there are some other issues. And when we talk about what does constipation mean to a patient, that it's not just the number of bowel movements or the or the shape of the stool, but it's other that could be really debilitating symptoms, this sense of incomplete evacuation. They, they, they feel, and sometimes it's true, sometimes like they really aren't fully evacuating or it's that sense that they're not. 
And that is, for some patients, very stressful that they feel that they can't fully evacuate. So one the way we judge a successful maneuver or successful intervention would be the number of complete spontaneous valve movements because we also do our best to try to have a patient set up with appropriate therapy so that they don't have to rely on laxatives on those on those ones that, that they, they feel that they need, that we'd like to have it such that their the impact on their life is as minimal as possible with their bowel routine. And that's only accomplished by improving the efficiency of their routine. Of course. And I can imagine somebody who has incomplete emptying might be highly hyper-focused on mm-hmm. uh, on their bowels. It could lead to anxiety. I know that Absolutely. it can be triggered by anxiety, but it also can lead to anxiety. It's, what are the treatments for IBSC? Yeah, so it's a vicious cycle. So, I mean, I think that, so our first treatment is what you've alluded to, and I'm glad we got to spend time talking about. It. So it's certainly lifestyle modifications. Make, make sure that your well-rounded diet, staying hydrated, moving, getting exercise, that is important. When that fails or isn't good enough, then there are some other um, strategies. And really the focus in general is to increase the fluid into the bowel to allow the bowel to work better. So sometimes that can be done with fiber supplementation. So with enough water, with that fiber, that can help. But we've actually had some important advances over the last few years with prescription medications that are appropriate when these usual interventions fail. And these are medications that have been well-studied that have been around in various parts of the world for quite a long time. Some of them are fairly new to Canada, but they all pretty, they they revolve around a very uh, similar hypothesis is that if you can generate more fluid into the bowel and what these medications can do, and some of them are just um, kind of natural substances that then stimulate the bowels to produce more fluid or to keep the fluid in the, in the lumen. So in the, in the tube themselves, that then, allows the bowel an easier time for it to work. So that allows them to have more efficient bowel movements. And interestingly, and for reasons that at least I'm not 100% clear on, it does seem to have an ability to dial down that sensitivity of the bowels so that they, so that, that pain and that bloating that we've discussed um, have also significantly improves. So it's, 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 we're in a very different spot now than we were five years ago where we have some really um, effective and safe medications when we need to use, we have, and it's had a tremendous impact in patients' quality of life um, when they've been on them and they, and they realize how things could be. It, it's fantastic, and I, and I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about this because I, I think a lot of people probably suffer with this and, and don't know what to do or don't know where to turn or, or don't even realize that they have, you know, this could be diagnosed. This is a diagnosable condition. Yes. Um, yes. And so I'm certain so many people are suffering and it's impacting their quality of life. And I, and I agree with you. I think we need to talk bowels <laughs> and mm-hmm. bowel movements yeah, much I, more so. <laughs> I appreciate it. Just the advocacy that we need to the awareness that this is a lot of people are suffering. We need to feel more comfortable talking about it. That's what will get some improvement in patients that suffer with these conditions. Absolutely. One in five Canadians. I mean, that is incredible and um, amazing mm-hmm. stats. And, uh, and so mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on the program, Pleasure. Dr. Bressler. And I'd love thank to you have you come back me. for those people Absolutely. who might have missed the show tonight, <laughs> because we do definitely need to get this out there. This is 
such an issue for uh, my patients and my colleagues' patients and, and just so many people. So where could people find out a little bit more information? Uh, is there a website? So, I mean, so there are. So there's the Canadian Digestive uh, Disease website, um, which is a nice patient-derived one. And also there's one, and it's kind of a strange name, but it's called Bad Gut. Um, and Bad Guts is actually it's a Canadian uh, it's a Canadian uh, patient advocacy website that has some interesting and important information about these conditions. That's right. I I definitely know Bad Gut. Anyway, right. well, thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate Pleasure. you coming on, thank and you. and we'll get you back. <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. You know, I talk a lot about sexless marriage because I have a clinical practice that is largely focused on that. And there are a number of reasons why people are in sexless marriages. It can be, you know, the sex just stopped after having kids, or it could be an infidelity issue, it can be substance use and abuse, anxiety, depression. I mean, the list goes on. But one thing you might not realize is that uh, pain may get in the way as well. And oftentimes, as people age, they start to get these aches and pains. They may experience arthritis or other pain conditions. Well, I'm very interested in this subject because I'm always looking for ways to help my patients. Paul Rothwell and Heather Vogel are owners of Luminous Health Solutions, a Vancouver health clinic specializing in a light therapy technology called photobiomodulation. And Paul Rothwell is joining me on the line. Good evening, Paul. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I was very interested to learn about this new technology because pain is a tremendous issue for so many people, and it can also impact their intimate life, not to mention mobility and socialization, sleep. Uh, but you have a new technology or light therapy technology called photobiomodulation. Can you tell me a little bit about photobiomodulation? What exactly is it? Yes, uh, thank you. It's um, uh, photobiomodulation um, is otherwise known as red light therapy. And uh, it's been around for a very long time, and it's used for many conditions. Um, it um, Essentially, how the mechanism works is it works at the cellular level to reduce oxidative stress in our cells. And when the oxidative stress is, um, is, is uh, reduced, it allows nitric oxide to be released out for circulation, which would help mm -hmm. uh, sexually and also for many reasons with the body. And um, then when that occurs... Because that helps with blood flow. That, that helps with blood flow, correct? With blood flow, exactly. The, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The and oxide. Go ahead. Yeah. It's with, so um, when the oxidative stress is reduced and nitric oxide, it, the reason it's still in, 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 in the mitochondria within our cells is because it gets trapped. And then when it's released, then the mitochondria being the power, power source of the cells... Um, is able to create cellular energy. And when the cellular energy um, starts to be created more, more frequently, then tissue repair uh, also uh, um, occurs. So this works in, on many levels with um, all sorts of different conditions, um, with, with healing from uh, anything to do with arthritis, uh, athletic injuries, uh, uh, fibromyalgia, 
yeah, it's quite it's quite remarkable. And uh, uh, Heather and I are seeing some great great results within our clinic over the years. Very interesting. So this red light therapy or photobiomodulation has been around for a long time. I didn't I did not mm-hmm. realize that to be honest with you. Um, yeah. And and it works for a multitude of pain conditions. And and the pain conditions that you mentioned can really have a negative impact on quality of life, in, in particular fibromyalgia, which um, can be very devastating for people who experience that and can really impact their jobs, their ability to work, their ability to socialize, uh, ability, ability to get out and even exercise. So how many treatments, first of all, how long does a treatment last? What, what is it like? And, and how many treatments does somebody need? Well, the treatments vary depending on the on the person um, and, you know, how far along they are and whatever condition they may have. So with a person with fibromyalgia, for instance, um, they're, what we find uh, with people coming into our clinic, they've tried everything and um, not everything's working for them. And our modality works well with so many others. Uh, so we're looking at um, usually somebody coming in at least uh, 8 to 16 times. And we normally know after uh, the first couple of treatments um, how that's working for them. And people with fibromyalgia, uh, they are so sensitive to so many different things. We're very careful to um, apply the light very effectively. Um, so how many treatments? Uh, yeah, 8 to 16. And uh, the treatments usually last about, uh, we have two different uh, modalities that we use. So one is a full body light bed. And people with fibromyalgia really benefit from that. And we're, we're the only ones in the region that has this. And uh, it uses three different types of lights, uh, three, um, uh, LED, near-infrared, and green. And the LED and near-infrared are the ones that really would benefit somebody with pain in their body. And then we also have handheld devices um, that are clinical grade that work beautifully on uh, treating the lymphatic system and then also pinpointing and targeting areas that um, um, where, the, where the pain really is. And so we, we, we go to the cause of the pain. So if somebody has pain somewhere in their body, we're able to determine through conversation, of course, um, kind of where that where the cause is. So if it's in a different part of the if it's in one part of the body, there may typically be a a, a cause somewhere else that uh, mm. that without that we're looking for. Uh, so we'll work through these. Uh, yeah, we, yes, for sure, and we work through nerval channels and. Um, the lymphatic system. And the lymphatic system is something that we address just about uh, all the time with our clients. And so we're, our lymphatic system is our filtering system within our body, as you well know. And uh, we're able to um, activate that and uh, create more circulation and get rid of toxins within the body. While uh, that's, in, that's on top of the, um, the um, tissue actually healing. So... Yes, it's um, it's a lot of fun every day to, to see these remarkable stories and these these people coming in that are, are walking away with a smile on their face. Which Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that is fantastic. Great work. Now, um, this is the back to the bedroom segment, so let's get back to that full body okay. light bed. <laughs> that sounds <Sure>. good. <laughs> see, I'm someone who likes to go to the dentist, so I can just like lie back, go ahead, yeah. work on my teeth. I don't care. It gives me a yeah. break. <laughs> So a full body light bed, that sounds amazing. So does somebody get in that bed? (laughs) 
Uh, yeah. And that, and so this light is like, I, I'm, I'm just picturing, I'm trying to picture what this looks like. Well, it actually, it looks like uh, a tanning bed. Uh, okay. Because of the art, so the design is such, but the light is completely different, and it's it, it there it's healing light. And so what it does is the same mechanism that I was mentioning. It um, uh, reduces inflammation in the body, and most importantly, it create it creates circulation. Um, and um, so when that when that occurs, the inflammation is down. As more circulation, it allows people to sleep better for one thing. Uh, it, it also allows the, the um, again the lymph, uh, lymphatic system to um, to activate, and um, it helps with um, with ED, erectile dis, uh, dis, dysfunction, and um, so there's there's that healing mechanism that it's it, it, we've we've had clients in that um, have reported a remarkable difference and you know how they're sleeping um, what and um, what's happening with them sexually, especially with men. Hmm. Wow, I wasn't expecting to go. I- <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't well, expecting I thought that's that, where you're going with, with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't. <laughs> no, no, I was just looking for a nap. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. We could say erectile okay. dysfunction. No, no, that's yeah. fantastic. I mean, it's great to have another option for yeah. erectile dysfunction. I mean, there's medications, diet, exercise, yeah. um, pumps, you know, and, and now we have um, the, what is the bed called again? The red light body. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, a, um, you know, just a full body light bed. Yeah, full body light bed. I mean, yeah, so yeah. so that can even no no. I was just thinking, you know, is it for somebody like that had you know a lot of people, especially fibromyalgia or arthritis, they have uh, pain throughout their body, or as you say, like they, they might have knee pain, but it can be originating mm-hmm. in the shoulder. I mean, I, I don't know, um, but uh, so it's that's and I was also just wondering how long. <laughs> Do they, does that treatment take? Like, how long will my nap be? Okay, let's just get real here. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, yeah. Well, so first of all, I, I, I went there about ED because um, I've been listening to the show since, well, a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I thought <laughs> that was, that, that might be relevant. Uh, but nonetheless. It, is. it totally and, is relevant. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Good. All kidding aside. And so, <laughs> and, uh, um, the, 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 the sessions are typically about 25 minutes in the bed. Um, so we allow 30, so it's 25 minutes in the bed and, um, there's a frequency, there's, there's a cumulative effect that happens with this, um, with, with this process. So if somebody's coming in, uh, depending on the condition, it's usually going to be a couple of times a week. And, um, as I said uh, earlier, everyone's different. So, you know, we don't know how long that process would take a couple of times a week. And um, um, that then so the frequency is really important uh, because with the with the dosage of light you get, it will fall off a little bit. So then if you come in mm-hmm. and you do it again and again, you can draw a line through that and get to that point of resolution where they don't have to do that anymore. And their body is healing on its own because the mitochondrial function is happening properly. Fantastic. Now, um, nothing, it seems, goes without side effects or adverse events. Are are there any um, issues that um, can occur from red light therapy? There are none. Is it completely safe? 
It is completely safe. It's non-invasive. Um, and uh, the the only thing that people will feel is um, better or nothing. Um, let's mm-hmm. say they go in the bed. So there will be, they don't feel anything. They'll enjoy the experience um, or they'll come out feeling um, uh, more energized or in fact, what may happen is that later in the day, they might feel a little bit more aggravated or fatigued, but that's fine because there's a healing mechanism that's, that, that's taking place. So to, to go back to your, to your question, this, this, this technology will never harm you, uh, it's, and it's non-invasive. And it, uh, it, all it does is just, hap- it, it just help you to heal your cells and heal your tissue. Right. And, and um it's non-invasive, but I'm just trying to figure with a bit mm-hmm. of my science background. I would imagine yeah. that the mitochondria in the skin cells absorb the light particles. Is that would that be um, a fair statement? And then yes, adenosine is um, created, and that's sort of that energy for all cells. Yes, the energy uh, for all cells. Yeah, and. and uh, and it doesn't matter where the cells are. It, they could be nerve cells, uh, soft tissue, uh, brain cells. We treat brains, um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, concussions. Uh, we're working through all, all sorts of different parts of the body. So that mechanism remains the same. And um, it's allowing your mitochondria to create cellular energy, which will repair the tissue. Yeah, and so they essentially rejuvenate themselves, especially if they've been damaged by, you know, I, I mean, I think people forget that, you know, excessive amounts of sugar consumption can lead to inflammation and that can damage tissue and cells and, um, and it, you know, that can lead to pain and maybe um, red light therapy can help reduce that inflammation potentially because the cells are able to respond better to the damage and then rejuvenate yes. themselves. Exactly, and that's the operative word. Actually, is the rejuvenation of the cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. even if we have, uh, we don't have anything wrong with our bodies. Uh, we have a, he- a healthy diet. Um, as we age, oxidative stress builds up within our mitochondria, and mm-hmm. uh, what what this what this does is um, actually help to rejuvenate the cells, and it's anti aging at the same time. And it allows more now, circulation now you've got my with, attention. Um, within your body. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, it's excellent. I know we focused on pain today, but I'd love to have you yeah. come back because I know that there are other uh, potential benefits for uh, skin health, for example, or acne. I know they've used it on wound healing and even hair growth. But, uh, yes. uh, Paul, I really appreciate you joining the program tonight. Where can people learn more? about red light therapy or photobiomodulation? Um, to go to our website, which is luminoushealthsolutions.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your coming thank on you, the show. And we'll definitely get you back because there are so many health conditions that potentially could be treated by this therapy. Yeah, we, so. Yes, absolutely there is. Yeah. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing back from you and we'll, um, we'll, we'll touch base. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to quickly revert back to this article that I wrote about a couple that I've been seeing for a little while. 
uh, it's on LinkedIn. If you want to go head on over to LinkedIn, you can follow me over there. Ask to connect. Fine. I connect with everybody. Um, some people are disconnected in their marriages, and that's largely what this uh, article was about. Uh, of course, it's, you know, names have been changed, and there's a few little details that are slightly different to maintain anonymity. Um, however, you know, one thing that was poignant in this, this couple was totally disconnected. She couldn't find her voice. He couldn't stop talking. They had a child, and they told me right early on that their one child had was speech delayed, and their other child had attention deficit disorder, the, the hypoactivity one, and the the one without the hy- without hyperactivity, ADD, attention deficit disorder versus ADHD. And, you know, I, w- I was struck by that early on because they mimicked their parents, really, because one of the parents was addicted to uh, video games and was online all the time. This family lived by their iPads and their phones. And, and you know, and it's just like, once they healed their sexless marriage and it, and it does take work, it's not easy, but they committed to it and they did the work and their children healed as well. And then the diagnosis of ADD went away. The older child started to speak. Once they started to sit down, basic things, sit down and have dinner together instead of keeping the television on 24 seven and letting the kids be on their iPads while they had dinner, simple things. And then the parents connecting with one another. Of course, it was a tremendous amount of education and work and over time, um, you know, that it takes, but well worth the investment in your marriage because you certainly don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be living in a sexless marriage because the impact on so many aspects of your life, finances, everything cannot be overstated literally have one minute left. I can't get to my great tips to improve your sex life. But one thing is clear. It is important that a couple actually, um, you know, take care of themselves, especially when they've been together for a while. It's, you know, it is self-destructive actually to ignore health issues or ignore depression or anxiety, that kind of a thing. You know, the unwillingness to you know, take care of oneself and, and be careful is also can be very damaging to a marriage or a relationship. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.